Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlies podcast. This is episode number 17, recorded Friday the 7th of May 2021, and today I've got another preview chapter of my upcoming audiobook, Witch of Wealth and Ruin, plus a little talk on the end about how I make my worlds. So, without further ado, I give you Chapter 2 of Witch of Wealth and Ruin, Book 2 in the Tidecaller Chronicles. If you haven't read Book 1, Daughter of Flood and Fury, you might want to go back and do that because there will be spoilers. But if you have, enjoy this chapter and I'll see you at the end for some behind the scenes talk on how I built the world we start to see in this chapter. Chapter 2 Duran is foul. I've been here three days, and I'm still not used to the gilded silk palanquins gliding past crowds of downtrodden workers, impossibly beautiful faces gazing from behind gauzy curtains. From my seat on the balcony of Café Myrta, I can see the city's famed towers rising glittering to impossible heights, while mud-brick shantytowns climb the steep slopes beyond. You can smell the inequality. Under the heady perfumes and incense drifting from market stalls is the common stink of unwashed bodies and human waste. It's probably why the rich burn incense in the first place. It sure isn't to any god other than money. I wonder what Gaxna would think, if she would love this place for its opulence or hate it for its greed, like I'm starting to. I smile, sipping my sickly sweet cup of tea. She'd probably do both, and start stealing from the richest to give to the urchins on the street. I'm waiting for Hiana Kogdan, the woman my father named at the end of my last immersion. It's taken three days just to get an audience with her, after the eleven days sailing here on a Bamani rig, and my stomach churns with everything that rides on this. Not just the chronicles, but my father's copy, with his notes on what he thought they meant. And not just an ally, but a wealthy one, if her alliance will transfer to me. Someone with the means to hire a mercenary army to take back Saray, if it comes to that. She could be the key to all my plans. And if she doesn't want to help, I've wasted two weeks trying. I ice the churn inside, my internal focus back now that I have a plan, and watch the street through the balcony's carved sandstone lattice. An azure palanquin sweeps up three hundred breaths later, and black liveried porters swarm around it. I stand and watch as its occupant ascends the stairs, face radiating beauty and health. That's what wealth does in Duran. It gives its owners more life. Vitality, they call it, a power running through their currency that makes them stronger, faster, more beautiful, and longer-lived. The wealthiest people here have been alive for centuries, they say. Amaranths. Apparently, Hiana isn't one yet, but the way heads turn and people scoot out of her path, she must be close. I brace myself as she glides through the packed cafe. I've always been awful at words, and all my hopes hinge on convincing this stranger to help me from the goodness of her heart. If only this were a fight, or we were standing in a proper pool of water so I could read her thoughts. Instead, I send a silent prayer to Ajay. If my cause is just... If you really do care about saving your people, let this woman help me. Alethea, she says, and even her voice is rich and lustrous, like a minstrel moments from song. Necklaces of coins layer her neck, the air warping around them like burning coals. 
It seems bold to wear so much money, but all the wealthy here do it. Kogdanjo, I say, using the Darnese form of respect. Use Spikujayan? Dara and Ujayan are somewhere between dialects and related languages. Trainer Yemla at the temple would be ashamed at me for forgetting which, but I'll feel more comfortable here speaking my own tongue. Of course, she says in that rich alto. I spent years in your city. That's where I met your father, around the time he was coming into power. I'm sorry to meet you under such unfortunate circumstances. She doesn't sound it, but maybe that's just the vitality beaming from her voice. He's in the waters now. I say, as much because I don't know how to respond to pity as because it's the actual truth. He's how I heard you were here, actually. Hiana raises an eyebrow. So the rumors are true. A girl with male magic. Such blasphemy for a Nujayan. Though, you won't find too many offended here. Money mends all things, as they say. Shall we sit? I realize I'm still standing here like an oaf and nod. She sits with the grace of a dancer, and I follow suit. One of her attendants swoops in to pour her mint tea from a fresh pot, then refills mine, sweetened with copious amounts of date sugar in the local style. How did you know my father, I ask? It's blunt, but like I said, I'm bad at words, and this is the only thing I can count on here, is her having enough of a connection to my father to want to help me. Initially, it was purely for business. The temple can make or break any trade endeavor in Saray. But then I found him intriguing. A driven man. Driven enough to ignore his own daughter. I am over the pain of that now, but behind it has come a sadness that I will never know him, that even now he's losing focus in the water, that this woman might have known my father better than I ever will. And you met Narimes too? A shadow falls across her perfect face. Unfortunately, yes. The reports from your attack on his wedding were mixed, of course, but I gather that you hold him responsible for Sturgeon's death? He is responsible. I can show you proof if you want. I reach my hand across the polished table. Hers is gloved, but still she snatches it back in the first move from her that hasn't looked practiced and perfect. That won't be necessary. I can believe it of him, based on the man I met back then. Even as a junior council member, Nurimes was unpleasant. That, and I trust you. A knot loosens in my shoulders, and I realize how long it's been since I've had anyone I could trust. Not that I trust her, but I've carried this weight alone for a long time. I ice the emotion, picturing it as water freezing into a giant block, then set it aside to deal with later. On my side or not, this is not the time to break down crying. He's worse than unpleasant, I say, voice steady again. He's perverting the temple and the city for his own gain, selling it to a Salem Dale woman to get himself in power, and he sent overseers to kill me because I tried to expose him. Yana nods. What went wrong? He had allies I didn't expect, I say, not bothering to ice my anger. You heard the head of the Therakent's guild was killed? She raises one perfect eyebrow. That was his doing too? His ally, yes, Miara. She sips at her tea. So you're dealing with the combined might of the seers and the Therakens. Not just that. Nerimes is no ordinary seer, and neither is Miara. They have powers they shouldn't. What powers, she asks, the afternoon sun casting bands of light and dark across her face through the lattice wall. The ability to let only certain information through a blind, or for Miara to disappear from her sisters' blood connection, 
Things seers and therakins swear are impossible. Almost like they have your vitality magic or some other hidden power. I was hoping you might know something about it. Your father's papers, you mean. She looks as though she expected this. Maybe he left instructions about me, like he did with the Therakens. Yes, do you have them? Unbidden, my hand goes to my chest, where I keep my father's letter. His words there echo what the ancestors told me in the water, that the chronicles are key to defeating Nerimes and stopping the floods. Having his own annotated version would save me years of study. Years we might not have. Yana tugs at a diamond pendant hanging from one ear. In addition to the coins around her neck, the woman is decked in jewels. Unfortunately, I do not. I suck in a breath. This was the one thing I was counting on, that even if Hiana didn't want to help me, she'd have the chronicles, have the information I need to make a plan. Do you know where they are? Hiana sets her cup down with a clink. I may, but let's cut to the chase. I am a busy woman, and I believe you are a straightforward girl as well. You're here for my help in avenging your father and taking back your city. I... yes, I am. Good. That is something I'm willing to do, given certain assurances. I viciously ice the relief that spreads in my chest, coming from the same place as that ache about doing this all alone. As good as this sounds, I still don't know if I can trust her, father's ally or not. What assurances? A black liveried waiter arrives just then carrying with him one of the tall smoking devices I've seen around the cafe. It is a beautiful curved vase with water in the bottom and a woven hose coming from one side, extending down into the water. I wait impatiently while he fusses with placing the clove leaf and coals just so in the top of it, glancing at Hiana. Meanwhile, she gazes placidly, and my question hangs in the air like a guillotine. He finally leaves. Tell me, Hiana says, taking up the ornate wooden mouthpiece and drawing in smoke. Do you have ambitions, Alethea? It's not the answer I'm expecting. I want to defeat Nerimes. She blows smoke, smelling of clove, but something sweeter as well. Jasmine? And do you want it with all your heart? The thing that I want with all my heart is to get Gaxna free, but Nerimes is a part of that. Yes. Good. I have been paying attention to your city for some time now, even before Nerimes' rise to power in the events at his wedding. Saray has so much potential, but its divisions hold it back. She proffers the smoking tube to me and I take it, seeking a moment's connection with her hand to read her thoughts, but her glove prevents it. Here, we settle our disputes in council, she goes on, with the Amaranthine presiding, and all of us with status able to say our part. It isn't ideal, I know, to base political power on wealth, but at least we all sit at a common table. This tribalism, this split between man and woman, has held your city back for centuries. What are you proposing? I don't add that I agree wholeheartedly. I still haven't heard what kind of assurances she's looking for. I am proposing they be united. And you're the one to do it? I'm the one to make it happen. You are the one to unite them. A female seer, child of the rightful chosen of Ujjay, friend of the Therakins? Too many emotions stir in my chest at this. Of course I want to unite my city, and the tribalism is stupid. But I can't help feeling she's selling this all to me, rather than just agreeing. And if she is, I need to know the cost before I buy in. 
Speaking plainly, I say, what would you want to get out of it? Position. Influence. Saray is a hub of trade even more than Duran, especially with the increase in Salem Dale activity. If I ever want to become an amaranth, I need an edge the others don't have. It would all be behind the scenes, of course. There are methods we could adopt for legal assurance. I search for words, wishing I had Gaxna's quick tongue. It sounds great, but there are people better suited for this, and I'm not trying to rule Saray. Her lips quirk. Ambition indeed. What are you trying to do? I hand the smoking tube back, needing to keep my mind clear. Did you read the papers my father gave you? Ah, she says, drawing deeply and exhaling a fragrant cloud. The flood. The end of all times, and coming sooner than anyone thinks. I sit forward. You know about it? And you believe it? I do, for what it's worth. Which is part of why I'm willing to risk so much on you. All this, she gestures at the bustling cafe, the city beyond the latticework wall. All this is temporary. We know Duran's seven towers were built long before any people naming themselves Daranese lived here. For all our wealth and pride, we're just little creatures huddling in the ruins of a civilization ten times our betters, and even they didn't survive. If another flood is coming, and your father convinced me it is, then we have to be ready. I get that same feeling again, that relief that someone else knows. So, you're with me? You want to stop it too? I do. And this is the best way to do it. Consider how much more power you will have to do whatever needs to be done as ruler of all Saray. What better position could there be? Oh, Jay, but I wish I could read her thoughts. I reach for the smoking tube and she again evades my touch, albeit with grace. That's the problem, I say. I don't know what needs to be done. I know it's coming. I saw that in the water. And I know my dad saw some hint of a way out in the Chronicles, but I have no idea what that is. Maybe I could get it done as Queen of Saray or whatever we'd call me. Or maybe I'd have to sail off the edge of Vina or go on a quest through Bamani or... Until I see the Chronicles, there's no way to know. Yana sighs. I wish I could give them to you, but we will likely have to take Saray first. From that position, we should be able to get most anything we'd want. But you said you knew where they were? Her face goes sour for a moment. I do, though it'll do you no good. The Tower of Many Names. She nods at one of the sky-piercing towers beyond the latticework, this one wrapped in vibrant cloth banners that stream behind it in the wind, giving it an undulating appearance. I frown. An amaranth stole them from you? An amaranth in name, yes. Her face darkens. Whoever or whatever it is that Nerimes and Miara belong to, we have it in Duran too. And I believe they heard clink somehow of what I had. The papers were stolen from me months ago, and only in the last few weeks have I become certain that they were the ones to take it. Not that it does us any good. What do you mean? I mean there is no way to get in there and get out alive. Trust me, I have the best spies and assassins in Duran at my service, and they have all refused. Have you tried thieves? I was trained as one in Saray. My leg starts to bounce. This is something I can do, something concrete after six weeks of powerlessness and frustration. Plus, Gaxna taught me well. I've snuck into the palaces of the wealthiest merchants in Saray and dropped unseen into the middle of Narimes' wedding ceremony. It's not just the tower, Hiana says, raising a hand as if to placate me. The guards up there are loaded with vitality. 
you would be captured or worse. I hold back the retort that no one in the world fights like Ujjayan monks, vitality or not. I'll look into it, I say instead. There may be strategies or forms to use to counteract their advantage. There is another way, she says, looking pained. It would cost me politically, but if those papers are so important to you, I may be able to get them through back channels. Coffers know there are plenty in this city who owe me favors. I hesitate. It's not a bad idea, but something in me says she is trying to dissuade me from stealing the papers directly. That she wants to be the one to get them for me, so I owe her something. So I agree to her plans to take back Saray. Which, father's ally or not, doesn't sit right with me. More importantly, what she's talking about could take days or weeks. This has already taken too long. But there's no need to say any of that. That would be great, I say. If you'll look into it, I'll do more checking on the tower. And thank you, Kogdunjo. Can you meet again in three days? Enough time for me to get the papers on my own, if it looks doable. My pleasure, Alethea, she says, standing. In three days, then. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that and the little taste that you got of Duran in there. Um, that'll be, spoilers, a major setting in this book. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about how I come up with these settings because I think that settings are one of the things that we love in fantasy is getting transported to this other place where there's magic and there's things of epic proportion and like all kinds of stuff. I've been watching Of Shadow and Bone on Netflix and I'm a loser for not having read the books, which my friends say are awesome, but it's got this this epic rift where there's all this dark stuff and there's monsters in there and it's separating a country and making travel really difficult. And I feel like settings like that are things that we love. So I like to write epic ones. I also try to make them kind of realistic. I haven't gone that deep into like the really magically altered landscape, aside from this one having these magical floods that destroy the world every couple centuries. When I make a setting, of course I know those facts about the world, and then I try to think about what in this particular place is really cool that makes it stand out. In book number one in Saray, that was the fact that it was around this harbor and it was really steep and this river was coming in that flowed through a temple and sort of waterfalled off the end and then there would also be these water channels coming down so there's fountains everywhere and I built kind of a society around that. Um, in this one I was imagining uh, kind of a similar climate. It's going to be really hot. It's on the water. It's another port city which is why it's so economically powerful but I thought what is the cool thing and I thought if this one is actually a city that existed before some devastating flood and then a later flood um, exposed it again, what would be the things that remained? And so, as you saw, we have these massive towers that are still there from some previous civilization and the people of this civilization are inhabiting them and uh, find them kind of a mystery even as they're a symbol of wealth and power. So I like to start with some kind of cool idea and we're going to spend time in these towers. Uh, you'll see that actually starting in the next preview chapter. So they're a central feature of the book, uh, life in these crazy post-apocalyptic towers. So I start with that cool thing and then I like to map it onto somewhere and although I do like drawing maps from scratch, I actually really like just looking around the world on Google Maps and finding something, um, some very specific landmass and taking it and uh, usually like we'll flip it horizontally or vertically 
and also uh, put it in a climate that it totally doesn't exist. I somehow find myself going back a lot to the North Atlantic, <laughs> at least for this series, islands around Iceland and up there off of uh, Greenland. There's just a lot of really cool shaped land masses up there. And, you know, I don't worry about scale. So I'll take something that's a very small island and make it into a very big one or that kind of thing, or just take a piece of coastline and paste it onto something else. And then I look at it and I imagine what's the weather like and where the drainage is, where would the cities be? And in this case, because it's an island that's covered with city, where the city would take form and what would be the rich parts and poor parts because of access to the water and to like usable land and that kind of thing. So I geek out on the geography of it. Something that I think about a lot while I'm driving long distance on my semi trips is yeah, geography. Then I make the map uh, with all that pasting and cutting. I haven't really finished any of these, but uh, someday maybe if y'all beg me for them, I can make them pretty like I did for my last series and put them out into the world. For me, it's just kind of a reference map so I know where things are as my characters are moving around. And then I start to be the anthropology geek that I am. Um, I have a degree in anthropology, so I start to think about the economics um, based on how the city can trade if it's overland or by sea and how the weather affects that and how the weather affects what kind of crops they can grow and what kind of resources are in the ground and how the magic plays into it, how that would affect their economy. Because if you've got magical powers, I mean, if you've got super strong guys, suddenly mining isn't as big of an issue, etc. And it's a pet peeve of mine when there are fantasy series that have this epic, powerful magic, and it doesn't really matter, and their like, economy is just the same, and nobody flies from town to town, even though everybody can fly. Um, they walk over land, and it takes forever. So I want to think about how the magic plays into it, and it usually helps me to think of some really interesting applications of the magic and develop it more. And the whole thing is kind of this recursive cycle where I develop one thing and it makes me think about this other thing. And as I get deep into that, it makes these other things come out. So I'm not much for research, but I am a lot for imagination. And it uh, it always ends up connecting into this hole that feels real somehow. So when I get to that stage, when I'm like kind of imagining the city and, and seeing it as a functioning whole, then I start to think about individual people who live there. I've already kind of got like the city and its disparities and its different classes separated out. But then I think about a particular person and imagine their life. And that helps me fine tune the differences and like the, the social tensions that'll be interesting to write about in the book. Like in this chapter, we met Hiana. She's, you know, a wealthy merchant, but she's not quite at the top. She's not an amaranth yet. And so she's seeking that status. And that makes me think about the things that she's willing to do within that society and the things that she can do. And also maybe where she came from and how that informs what she's trying to do now. Um, Duran is a port city, just like Saray. So I imagined her as a as someone who's made her money on trade. So thus she used to live in Saray as she was getting the trade business set up and she met Alethea's father and that's why she can be the kind of ally that she is in this chapter. And then I think about how that drives her motivations for what she's trying to do here. I mean, she says that she wants to take back Saray so she can become an amaranth and... Um, yeah, and then I wanted it to contrast with, with book one in which in Saray gender is such a big deal and so divided with this concept that I can't remember if it comes out in this chapter in a different one of uh, how she's a woman and amaranth are the amaranths. I haven't had to write that plural are all male, but 
uh, she can become one of them anyway, because with enough money, like your gender just changes. They have that kind of fluidity in notion that seems very wild and foreign um, to the people of Saray and maybe to any of us that live in a place with really rigid uh, gender ideas. So there's a bunch more geekery that goes into it, but that's the basics. I uh, come up with a cool thing in the context of a world that hopefully has a cool thing, and then I find a landmass and build the city around it and imagine the society, and then I put individual people in it, and I, I think through how they navigate it, and that helps me fine-tune all the little pieces of it. I had a lot of fun making Duran uh, because the magic is based around wealth and thinking about how that changed the economy. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I imagined I didn't use about uh, debt being a kind of negative magic and how that makes power flow to the people who've lent money and all that kind of thing. Um, but I really had fun making this one and fun in the book, revealing more and more of the backstory and kind of understanding where we are and why it's the way it is as the story goes forward. And it ends up mattering to Alethea's journey. Um, and we get to spend a bunch of time up in these rickety post-apocalyptic towers. So <laughs> uh, with that, I think I'm going to get back to planning book three. I'm excited to cap it off and to have this trilogy out there in the world. But I am hoping to put up a few more of these preview chapters. And hopefully soon after that, we'll have an audiobook to talk about. If you're a time traveler listening to this in the future and you just want to jump in and stop getting previews, I imagine that I will put a link to that to be published in the future book below. For the rest of us, um, that should be coming pretty soon. I mastered all the files and I'm just doing quality check today before I submit them to the platforms that distribute them. And I have a new way to distribute it. But anyway, with that, I hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. I'll be back with more soon, but till then, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com/free. Thanks for listening and read on. <laughs>